is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. And it is 4 o'clock straight up as we begin our program today. I'm Sandy Clough alongside Sean Rotar, who will be joining us here shortly, a little bit later in this hour. This is, of course, Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. You can watch us or listen via milehighsports.com slash watch or slash listen. And you can uh, listen via the Mile High Sports app as well. Our executive producer is the great Danny Bailey. And you can call or text us anytime during the course of our program at 303-831-1340. One of the questions we posed yesterday, but we didn't really delve into this, and I'd love to hear either via text or phone call, your sense of the Broncos winning the last three games that they'll be favored to win, sometimes heavily favored to win. And even if they do miss the playoffs at 10-7, and which would make them quite possibly only the second team since they went to the 17-game schedule to go 10-7 and and miss the playoffs. It's kind of like it used to be going 10-6 and or even 11-5 and and missing the playoffs. Hardly ever happened. Happened to the Broncos once going 11-5 and in 1985, missing the playoffs, and the Patriots won 11-5 and when Tom Brady got hurt and Matt Castle played quarterback in 2008 and missed the playoffs. Miami won the division. Uh, New England lost out on a playoff spot even while winning 11 games that year. Of course, uh, the Patriots and the Broncos play on Sunday. Uh, Very, very different circumstances from most of the games played between the Broncos and the Patriots, and there have been some beauties down through the years between these two teams, including multiple championship game matches uh, here in Denver. As a matter of fact, uh, 2013 2015, both games won by the Broncos on their way to respectively Super Bowl 48 in 2013 and Super Bowl 50 in 2015. Uh, This game does not carry the same significance. The Broncos are 7 and 7. The Patriots are 3 and 11. Uh, The Broncos will not be making a coaching change at the end of the year, regardless of how they finish. And the Patriots almost certainly will announce uh, perhaps not a firing, but uh, a mutual agreement that uh, they part ways with Bill Belichick, uh, whose record in New England has been virtually uh, unmatched uh, during any similar stint by any other coach in the history of the National Football League with one team, all the Super Bowl appearances, the six Super Bowl titles that uh, you all know about, six and three in Super Bowls down through the years. Yes, the Patriots have uh, had trouble with the exception of one year, 2021, since the departure of Tom Brady. But 
Uh, this game coming up on Sunday night gives the Broncos a chance to go 8-7. and seven. And that is a record that over the last six years they have not had after 15 games. And they would then take on possibly a more vulnerable opponent than New England, even though the records are not the same and the Chargers have a better record at the moment at 5-9. and nine. The Chargers are playing with a backup quarterback and a defense that seemed to quit last Thursday night when they played against the Las Vegas Raiders. So that would take them to 9-7. and seven. And, of course, the game remaining in Las Vegas against the Raiders, an interesting game because you have an interim coach in Pierce for the Raiders whom the players like. And if the Raiders were to win a couple of games down the stretch, let's say, finish 8-9 and nine after the way they started the season before firing Josh McDaniels, there's a possibility that maybe the players get their way this time. The players wanted Rich Bisaccia back a few years ago. Remember that? And they hired McDaniels instead and let Bisaccia go. Players really wanted Bisaccia, and they did not like McDaniels. So maybe Mark Davis listens to the players this time. But it's out there at 10-7. and seven. Would that satisfy you as a fan if the Broncos not only had a winning record but won 10 games this year? The Broncos have not won as many as 10 games since their Super Bowl season of 2015. So even at 10-7, and seven, didn't get them qualified as one of the top seven teams in the AFC, the four division winners, the wild card teams. Even if they didn't make it after a one and five start, going 10 and seven, finishing nine and two in their last 11 games, wouldn't look as good if they started nine and two and finished 10 and seven and missed the playoffs. But starting one and five, finishing 10 and seven, would that be satisfactory? Uh, Sean Payton is making it very difficult to fully embrace his methods and his tendency to blame someone else, if not everyone else, when things go wrong. But the bottom line is wins and losses. Payton won a lot of games during his 15-year stint as head coach of the New Orleans Saints. And starting here at 10-7, and seven, after a year in which the Broncos went 5-12 and 12 and finished last, 10-7 and seven would finish second in the AFC West and wouldn't necessarily put them that far behind a 12-5 and five team in Kansas City, and that's assuming Kansas City wins its last three games. Yes, I'm assuming that the division is now out of reach with Kansas City at 9-5 and five and Denver at Seven and seven. Kansas City has a better divisional record. They split the head to head games this year, so that would not serve as a tiebreaker. And the Chiefs have three games left at home against the Raiders in Cincinnati and on the road at Los Angeles against the Chargers. Not difficult to imagine, especially if the Chiefs look at the Dolphins ahead of them. And the Dolphins have Dallas at Baltimore and Buffalo in their last three games. So I think. A lot of the odds makers are saying, hey, Kansas City, uh, next to maybe Baltimore 
in the AFC has the best chance of going to the Super Bowl and perhaps winning the game. We'll get into the odds a little bit because they've changed a lot given the results in Week 15. All of a sudden, apart from San Francisco, the most likely teams to win Super Bowls, the second most likely, the third most likely, the fourth most likely, all AFC teams. Philadelphia's loss last night did not impress people, especially since they were ahead and seemed to have the game salted away until old friend Drew Locke got hot on a final lengthy drive for what turned out to be the winning touchdown in the winning seconds of the game against a former New England defensive coordinator named Matt Patricia, who all of a sudden this week was named as, in effect, the acting defensive coordinator, acting in the sense that he's calling the defensive signals now, and his predecessor is upstairs in the booth, kind of the reversal of Sean Lewis and Pat Shermer at CU this year on the offensive coordinator side when Shermer was actually in the booth but calling the plays while Lewis stayed on the field and would kind of help relay the plays in, maybe make a suggestion every now and then, but there's no question that Pat Shermer was calling the plays and no question that Matt Patricia was calling the plays for the Philadelphia Eagles last night. In any case, it remains puzzling at this hour as to what exactly happened on the sidelines Saturday night. And I know there are those out there. We spoke to uh, one of our guests uh, yesterday on this point. And the feeling was uh, Mick Miller, Fox 31, who was terrific yesterday with us. But uh, we disagreed on uh, whether this was a big deal or a little deal or no deal, and Mick seemed to come down on the side of somewhere between no deal and a very little deal. But it is true that Sean Payton, in a very animated way, was unquestionably, after screaming at the officials, which was understandable if you watch the sequence of plays that preceded it, uh, chose to take some of his ire out on Russell Wilson for reasons that still aren't very clear. So, again, yesterday Peyton spoke to that notion and said, my relationship with Russell Wilson is great. We get along great. Russ and I get along great. Great relationship. So he's kind of given three different answers now to the question. The first answer following the game was I was just upset at the officials. That's all that was going on there. So you were yelling at Russell Wilson because you were upset at the officials, and you had already yelled at the officials, or at least one of them. So you yelled at Russell Wilson because you got tired of yelling at the officials, so you yelled about the officials to Russell Wilson. Well, that didn't really fly. And so follow-up questions were asked. And his second answer was after the game, that's none of your business. What I talk about with Russ is none of your business. Well, yesterday he softened a little bit. And he said, well, we have a great relationship. 
No big deal. No big deal. Great relationship. Well, Teddy Bruschi of ESPN, who was around a number of quarterback coaching arguments when he was with the New England Patriots, and Tom Brady would get into it, not so much during games with Bill Belichick, but at times in the practice field. And during games, Tom Brady very publicly would either initiate the yelling or yell back at any number of offensive coordinators during his time in New England, including Josh McDaniels and Bill O'Brien. Now, under Bill O'Brien, as offensive coordinator, the Patriots never won a Super Bowl. They won a whole bunch of Super Bowls when Josh McDaniels was working with Tom Brady. They get into it on the sidelines. And Brady gave at least as good as he got from Josh McDaniels and from Bill O'Brien, too, for that matter. So based on that, Teddy Bruschi, longtime teammate of Tom Brady's in New England, was talking yesterday on first take about what he would have liked to have seen Russell Wilson do when Sean Payton was yelling at him in Detroit on Saturday night. Russell Wilson, I mean, this is a mentally tough kid to be dealing with this for so long now because this is a guy that's dug them out of a hole and is starting to play well again. I'm just waiting, though. I'm just waiting, Russ and, and Sean, just one time, Russ to go right back at him on the sideline and say, man, shut your ass up, man. I'm oh. doing my job here. Yeah. You know, And that's what it takes, actually, yes. for a coach like this, for a Parcells. I mean, that's basically who this is right here. I mean, that, 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 that he was his mentor. What's that? Don't you think and he wants it. He and I'm telling you, he does. Russ has just got to say, now I'm here. I know this is my team, too. You need to shut up, coach, and let me play. It's coming. Yeah. I'm just telling you. I, I think hope part it's of this, coming from Russ. I think part of this, too, is, is, is also the mentality to go to that old school Sean Payton, Bill Parcells. Is, listen, when, when I can go at the quarterback like this, I can go at anybody like this. And I think he's talking to the whole team. I think that was frustration boiling over, right? Again, like how they played, playoffs on the line. They didn't, they didn't show up as they were expected to, and I think we saw that there. Um, I love, though, that he didn't answer this question to the media. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, some things are, you know, meant to be kept private, and that, that was one of those moments. You ever uh, gone at a coach? You it's ever football. gone at a coach when they, you know, somebody come at you the wrong way? You ever gone at them? I, I mean, I think it's healthy. You know, sometimes you need a little healthy confrontation. I think it's healthy, too. <laughs> you know? I think it's a great yep. thing. I yep. can't wait to see it. Oh, well, uh, that's uh, Alex Smith, by the way, who was also talking, uh, Teddy Bruschi at the beginning, and then uh, Alex Smith interjecting. Uh, Alex Smith. I'm pretty sure under those circumstances would not have yelled back at any coach he ever played for. And he played for some fiery coaches during his days in the national football league. And I am virtually certain that Russell Wilson, if confronted again in a similar way on the sideline, and that's twice that it's happened this year, once in week two uh, during a game in which the Broncos blew a, a big lead against the Washington Commanders, and the other time, of course, the other night in Detroit. Uh, Wilson really didn't respond either time. The first time he kind of kept walking as he was passing Peyton, kind of kept going, uh, but definitely heard what Peyton had to say. This time was more extended outbursts that involved a one-way conversation uh, Peyton 
even going back at Wilson a second time, even a third time, uh, after getting whatever he had to get off his chest the first time. I don't know that you're ever going to find out. It probably isn't all that important. It could be any one of a number of things. But when you're not clear on why you're being yelled at, I'm kind of with Teddy Bruschi. It isn't in Russell Wilson's character to yell back at a coach. Uh, I don't know that he's ever had to before this year. Uh, Last year, certainly, if anything, he was coddled by the head coach and by the coaching staff and by the front office and by ownership. Heck, he had an office on the second floor of the facility out of Dove Valley. He wasn't getting yelled at, just the opposite. Peyton, who had a famously close relationship with his quarterback in New Orleans for all but one of his years as the head coach there, Drew Brees, Drew Brees and Sean Peyton were strong personalities, are and were strong personalities, never had an outburst like that. There was never any indication that off the field, during practice, in meetings, there was ever a crossword that was spoken by either one of them in the direction of the other. That's not how they rolled. They seemed to have kind of a mind-meld relationship in which they spoke the same language that hardly anybody else on the team understood, but they could talk to each other and understand where the other was coming from uh, with language that was pretty much their own football stuff x's and o's they seem to always be on the same wavelength it doesn't seem that it's been very frequent this year that sean payton and russell wilson have been on the same length uh whether the same wavelength uh, whether it's on the field or in terms of commentary especially coming from payton Very, very few words of praise directed at Russell Wilson during the season or during the preseason. And we talked about that, Sean and I did, during the course of the preseason. There were some words of praise that Russell Wilson was defended even as Sean Payton went off on the coaching staff from last year and virtually everybody who was in the building last year at any point blaming them for the lousy season the Broncos had and saying Russell Wilson hasn't lost anything. Russell Wilson is just fine. But once the regular season started, and especially when Wilson started to play well, it seemed odd that Peyton didn't seem terribly anxious to offer words of praise, uh, words of gratitude to Russell Wilson, who has had, by any fair measure, a pretty good year. Not a great year but a pretty good year and stands, although I'm sure this means nothing to Sean Payton who cares not a whit about history prior to his arrival uh, in the winter of 2023. But it's been nine years since the Broncos had a quarterback who both threw for 3000 yards and had a quarterback rating of 50.0 or better, not a passer rating, a quarterback rating. The quarterback rating for Russell Wilson right now is 50.0. The total number of yards he's thrown for, 2,832. 
which means that unless he gets hurt, he's going to throw for 3,000 yards. And if he plays pretty well against the remaining teams on the schedule, who are all losing teams, all teams that have been officially or unofficially eliminated from playoff consideration, he'll get his 3,000 yards and he'll probably have a quarterback rating since 50 is average, the grading system or the system they use for quarterback rating is a grade from 1 to 100. So it's easy to understand. 50 is average. Anything better than 50 is better than average. Anything below 50 is below average. Russell Wilson was in the mid to high 30s, I think, last year, as I recall, with his quarterback rating quite a bit better this year at 50.0. You'd think that there'd be some appreciation for a quarterback who's done something that hasn't been done around here in nine years since Peyton Manning did it in 2014. By the way, Peyton Manning did not do it in 2015. He wasn't even close with quarterback rating, and because of the injury sustained the plantar fasciitis, he did not throw for 3,000 yards even in 2015. So that combination of 3,000 passing yards and a 50.0 or better quarterback rating has been something that no Bronco quarterback has accomplished 2015 through 2022. Russell Wilson has a shot at it this year, and the Broncos also have a reasonably good chance, playoffs or not, of winning 10 games this year. We'll talk more when uh, Sean joins us in just a few moments about uh, the game coming up this weekend on Sunday night. We'll be taking a look at uh, how the Nuggets got back on track last night with a full and healthy lineup. One of the rare times this year they've had it during the course of the first 28 games of the season. More a third of the season has been played, and the games have been few and far between since the Nuggets had the same starting five that helped win them an NBA title and had most everything to do with their winning an NBA title in 2023. Sandy Clough, Sean Rotar, this is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Stay with us. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. The Nuggets started the season on an undefeated roll at home. Lost a couple recently, stumbled a little bit against Houston, uh, For three quarters, they got blown out, made a frantic rally in the fourth quarter to make the game look closer by the end than it actually was. They lost a very tough game that was pretty close right throughout, single-digit leads uh, on either side, not a game that either team really broke open at any point. Uh, The Thunder played a terrific fourth quarter. And on a last-second shot by Shea Gilgis-Alexander, they knocked off the Nuggets by a point. Well, Denver more than redeemed itself last night against Dallas, 130-104 to at Ball Arena with the ball sharing at a premium. 
Uh, the Nuggets finished the game with 29 assists and only eight turnovers. But the big story was the play of the bench. The Nugget bench accounted for 62 of the 130 points. A little factoid that did not escape the notice of head coach Michael Malone. Uh, 32 fast break points is a great number. 60 in the paint, um, 29 assists. Um, there were a lot, a lot of good performances, and I thought our bench was really good tonight. I mean, I was proud of them because when you go in the game and you're playing with the lead, the players have a tendency to say, I'm going to get mine now. And that group played the right way, building good habits. And uh, I, I thought that entire group from Reggie to CB to Julian to Peyton to Zeke, they were, those guys were outstanding. And he's right. He got all five of them. And they all played major minutes last night because I believe for the first time this year in any game, and uh, Danny Bailey will be quick to correct me, I'm sure, if I am wrong on this, or you listening can feel free to correct us at 303-831-1340 by phone or by text. I think it was the first time this year that not a single starter, not one, played more than 28 minutes. Jokic played 28 minutes, and instead of a triple-double, had a triple single last night. Now, when was the last time Nikola Jokic was in single digits in points, rebounds, and assists? I, I can't remember. And a lot of it had to do with he basically didn't play in the fourth quarter. Played 28 minutes for the game. Eight points, nine rebounds, seven assists, two steals. Very efficient, only two turnovers, and he was plus 16 in those 28 minutes. The starters were terrific. Gordon was plus 18 in 24 minutes. Porter plus 13 in 23 minutes. Murray plus 18 in 25 minutes. Caldwell Pope back in the lineup last night, plus 17 in 26 minutes. But the bench, Watson played 24 minutes at 10 points. Strother had 12 in 21 minutes. Neither man turned the ball over. Brown had one turnover, played 20 minutes, was plus 19. Sean's favorite player, Zeke Naji, had 14 points, four rebounds, two assists, a steal, a block, and only one turnover, plus 10 in 20 minutes of court action. And Reggie Jackson, who was very good filling in as a starter for Jamal Murray, played one of his better games this year coming off the bench with 20 points, one rebound, four assists, and a plus 14 in 19 minutes. So major minutes for the bench, 19 for Jackson, 20 for Najee and Brown, 21 for Strother, 24 for Watson. Nobody in the basketball game for Denver. They played 10 guys last night. A couple other guys got in for a few garbage time minutes at the end, but they basically played 10 guys for somewhere between 19 minutes and 28 minutes. 10 guys played. I guarantee you that hasn't happened before this year. They had 10 guys playing between 19 and 28 minutes. And the Nuggets have had an occasional one-sided loss. Really, the only truly one-sided loss they had all year was the game at Minnesota that they lost 110-81. to Otherwise, at least by the end of the game, they've been pretty much in single digits uh, in every one of their other losses apart from the 
won in Minnesota, and they've lost only nine other games, of course. And they've won 18, most of them impressively, especially the home games. Uh, they've won their fair share of close games, uh, games in Detroit and Chicago that shouldn't have been very close. But in Detroit, the coach got thrown out, Jokic got thrown out, and in Chicago, Jokic got thrown out. And all of those ejections happened in the first half. So though they didn't pound the Pistons or the Bulls, they did win those games, both games without Jokic and one of the two games uh, without head coach Malone. They shot 56% plus last night. They were at 54% on threes. 18 to 22 at the line, 46 rebounds and 29 assists against only eight turnovers. Hard to find too much fault in that. We suggested yesterday that the Nuggets would have an edge. Dallas does not get much notice for its defense, and rightly so. They really don't play any. But last night was a good example of one great individual, Luka Doncic, having yet again one of those MVP kind of performances with 38 points, 11 rebounds, and 8 assists. And believe it or not, those numbers aren't far off what he's been averaging this year at right around 33, 8, and 9. Jokic, by comparison, 27 points on average, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists. So these two, who are good friends, both delivering MVP type of performances early in the season, along with a fairly large assortment of players around the league. It's been a good start to the NBA season. I won't even throw in the fact that the Lakers raised their in-season tournament championship banner last night and then got beaten by the New York Knickerbockers. On their home floor. I kind of enjoyed that one. That, that was the one game I was paying attention. Raise the banner for the in-season championship and then get whipped by the Knicks. We're actually a pretty good team. One of the best four or five teams in the league based on form so far. But... It, it, Listen, the Nuggets are 18-10, and 10 and the Nuggets are fine. No, the Nuggets aren't first. That's Minnesota in the West at 20-5. They aren't second. That's Oklahoma City, against whom the Nuggets have split two games. Oklahoma City is 17-8. and eight. The Nuggets, with the win last night, moved to third at 18-10, and 10, followed by Sacramento at 16-9, and nine, and the fifth and sixth place teams are both 16-10. and 10. Yes, Dallas and the Clippers who have been on a tear lately. What's it been, Danny? Eight in a row? Something like that for the Clippers? I believe that's right. They had a losing record. They go on this winning streak, and they are now in sixth place, but only a half game ahead of New Orleans at 16-11. Lakers now at 15-12. Houston 13-11. Phoenix 14-12. That's right. Ten of the 15 teams in the West have winning records. And there seems to be, at the top of the West, at least three really, really good teams. I still think the Nuggets, until proven otherwise, are the best of the three, but Minnesota is for real, and Oklahoma City is very good. There's more dynamic talent on those two teams than there was a year ago. Phoenix, with 
Durant and Booker playing most of the games. Beal, of course, has hardly played in any of the games with all of his injuries. But Phoenix is 10th in the West at 14 and 12. By comparison, the 10th place team in the East is 11 and 15. That's Toronto. So all things considered, Gordon's got a bad heel. He's limping around off the court. Says the heel's been bothering him for some time. And he's playing hurt. And by the way, he had 21 points, five rebounds, and five assists along with a steal last night. Was plus 18 in 24 minutes. Playing on a bum heel. That probably at some point the Nuggets will allow him to rest. He wants to play. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm my respect for Gordon is growing by the game. He is as tough as they come. He is playing with a legitimate injury that would keep a lot of guys out. And, yes, every now and then he's thrown in a stinker while playing hurt. But last night was not one of those nights. He was terrific. And with all these things going on, by the way, the Nuggets last year in their championship season after 28 games, Sean Rotar, were 18 and 10, just as they are this year. On track. On uh, track. And, and in this case, as you correctly pointed out a couple of minutes ago, uh, behind uh, the uh, play of Zeke Nanji off the bench last night. Very, <laughs> well, very good. Among others. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, I but, thought I'd stick the needle yeah, in no, while I, you weren't here. Exactly. And you know what? As, 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 the, the truth is he was really, really good. And that, that to me more than any other part of this game. And not only this game, but really, Sandy, the last two prior to this, the bench has looked not just serviceable, but good. And... Obviously, for the Nuggets, they understood that after losing Bruce Brown, that this was going to be a work in, in progress, right? And it was going to be for a decent chunk of the season. But perhaps it's not so bad. Uh, obviously, I think when you get Reggie Jackson's season the way it has been, where he's kind of turned back the clock, he looked like he, he was miscast with the Nuggets after they added him last year. And all of a sudden, this year, it's like a totally different guy. That does sort of accelerate the process of the rest of the bench when you have someone who can kind of take charge of it. And Christian Brown, as we know, is a player that's had great success. And and again, when you look at the younger guys at Brown and Strouder, these are guys that had outstanding top level college experience with and great teams. With yes. great teams, and and, and to they a certain were extent, they were the type of glue players that made those teams. Either really, really good or great. Right. Now, Watson, not as much, but with a good program as well. Certainly. And even though he didn't get on the court that often. And so, yeah, this is coming around, I think, faster than I had anticipated. And that's a really good sign for the Nuggets. And the more opportunities they have like this to put games together, the better it's going to be for the Nuggets going forward. We weren't on the air together, certainly not here, at this time a year ago. But let us remember. At this time a year ago, the Nuggets were 18 and 10, and no one, and I mean no one, was singing the praises of their bench. Right. Now, that changed in the playoffs. But Reggie Jackson wasn't a part of the bench rotation in the playoffs. Strother was not a part of the rotation in the playoffs. Peyton Watson, a rookie, was not a part of the bench rotation in the playoffs. The three bench players who all played well during the playoffs were Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, and Christian Brown. 
But at this time a year ago, it was look out below when Jokic goes out of the game. Right. And that was a major concern. So my position is, remembering back to a year ago at this time, the coach from whom we just heard speak highly of his bench was not saying these things about his bench at this time a year ago. He was trying to figure out who he could actually put out there. Right. He's much more excited now. Now, the only reliable guy at this time a year ago they had coming off the bench is Bruce Brown. Jeff Green wasn't playing that well. Christian Brown was not playing that much. You know, he was playing a hell of a lot more than Christian Brown off the bench at this time a year ago. Bones Highland. Right. And look what happened to him in the latter days of January. And look what happened after he left the bench. He was shortly, he was then benched. He was then traded. He was playing 19 minutes a game. Mm-hmm. The Nuggets were relying on him coming off the bench. That's how shaky their bench was, that Bones Island was getting 19 minutes a game. He sure as hell isn't getting 19 minutes a game now coming off the bench for the L.A. Clippers, who are on an eight-game winning streak at the moment. So my position is there's more to be excited about at this time this year about this bench than there was Last year at this time. Yes. The bench got better, but even during the second half of the season, ups and downs from the Denver bench. Especially ups now that downs. parts of them are battle-tested as well. The Nuggets will get back at it on Wednesday when they will uh, take on the Raptors, head to the road now for the next three games for the rest of the week prior to the Christmas game, the showdown with uh, Golden State here in Denver. We'll keep track of that, of course. The Denver Broncos not only lost, that was a problem, but they didn't get much help either, Sandy. And when you look around the league, the wrong teams won. Now, a couple weeks prior, the right teams won. What does it mean for the Broncos and their playoff odds? I will tell you, it's a little bit tricky to navigate. We'll do our best to set that path for you next on Miley Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. When the Denver Broncos lost to the Detroit Lions in, um, uh, let's just say, a fashion in which uh, no one really looked at it and said, well, just a couple plays either way. <laughs> it was uh, one-sided, to say the least. The... Uh, the control of their own destiny when you're talking about the, the playoffs disappeared. The problem is a lot of the teams that they could have used to lose, and, and a couple of weeks ago they got almost all of that in their way. And, and when they lost to Houston, it could have been much more disastrous. But that week, a bunch of the teams they needed to lose also lost. No such break this last week. And that means that for the rest of the season, things get rather complicated for the Broncos, that their their odds, odds drop, and their odds drop for a reason. And, Sandy, you talked about this uh, yesterday. It's because it, now we're getting late into the year. There's a lot of divisional games still left to be played, and not everybody 
can lose. And this <laughs> right. is always the problem when you have those opportunities in any sport. When you have the opportunity to take control of your own playoff destiny, why it's so important to do so, because when you lose that and you have to hop over teams, as in four teams, four in this case, the Broncos, as it stands in the AFC, are in 11th place with the tiebreakers. And, and the only team that out of those, uh, the, the, the 10 above them, they're all in the mix. Only the teams behind them, the Raiders, Chargers, Titans, Jets and Patriots, the latter three, which were already eliminated, nobody feels that those teams even have a chance, even if they went out. So the Broncos are the are the last team left among the groups in the AFC that aren't playing out the string. That's pretty desperation time. They have to yes. get the wins. But there are a couple games next week that are going to be highly definitive in the way that this team's opportunities go, and they have nothing to do with them. And specifically, I'm looking at, at kind of pick a matchups between Cleveland and Houston, especially because we don't know C.J. Stroud's situation Not for yet. sure. The game is in Houston, it's in Houston, which helps Houston. And then as, uh, you know, I see I see Nilo Piro back there in the booth talking to Danny Bailey. As Anilo uh, put it earlier this week when he and I were talking, the battle of the pretenders, and that would be the Dallas Cowboys and the Miami Dolphins, because if you look at the strength of victory for these two teams, and mind you, as it stands right now, these teams are number two in their, each of their respective conferences. Right. But both ten and four. Dolphins' strength of strength of schedule this year has been three ninety three. Right. Their strength of victory, in other words, the teams that they've the winning percentage of the teams they've beat three twenty one. Now only a good team. The New York Giants and the New Orleans Saints have lower strength of victories, and those aren't playoff teams. The Dallas Cowboys slightly better at three seventy nine. But, but the truth it of the could matter be is, argued they haven't beaten a good right, team. Right, neither of these teams Except have beaten Philadelphia. a good team. And so the funny thing is, one of them is going to win. Home. And you might have to ask, did they beat a good team at that point? So I don't think we right. know Philadelphia what to looked do. terrible last night again. Philadelphia's lost three in a row. Right. They're sliding. They're sliding. And they might blow the division, which at 10-1 and one seemed to be a certainty. They had already beaten Dallas head-to-head. They were 10-1. and one. And all of a sudden, Dallas is ten and four. And, Philly's and ten Philly and four. Today, as it stands, is in fifth. Uh, Philly has a very easy closing schedule, and I think Philly will win that division because they have two games left with the Giants and one with Arizona at home. Dallas has at Miami, Detroit at home, at Washington. Um, somebody's got to win when Dallas plays at Miami. It could be argued that neither has beaten a strong team yet this year. So one of them's got to win, but one of them's got to lose, and the loser will carry that label along with a 10-5 and record that they can't win big games, they can't beat good teams. Now, for the Broncos, entering the playoffs, you don't care. As a matter of fact, you're, you're clearly pulling for the Cowboys to win that game and knock everybody in the AFC down. I mean, that makes the most sense. That gives you an opportunity. Oh, sure. You're all in, in, in a game that involves teams from separate conferences. You're always rooting for the NFC team. Right. So, you know, Dallas winning that would, would obviously in general be helpful because Miami could be in a, a bunch of trouble. But with respect to Buffalo and winning the division, they are not a shoe-in to win the division any more than Dallas is a shoe-in to win the NFC. The problem, of course, is that Denver doesn't have the tiebreaker over Miami. Uh, by virtue that would of a be the problem. somewhat if Miami's notable a wild loss. Card. If, if Miami's, Miami's a wild card, card and they finish with 
10 and 7 records, which I, I don't think will happen, but it could because Miami is playing Dallas this week at Baltimore and they finish up with Buffalo at home, but a Buffalo team that beat them 48 to 20 earlier this year. Right. And a Buffalo team that is probably playing at least as well now as it was then. In fact, the uh, folks at BetMGM say that the Buffalo Bills are the seventh most likely team to win Super Bowl 58 in the entire league behind only San Francisco, Baltimore, Kansas City, Miami, and Philadelphia, along with Dallas. Buffalo has better odds, much better odds, in fact, than Detroit, Jacksonville, or Cleveland. Uh, Buffalo, even though it lost to Denver, plus 1,200, the Broncos plus 15,000 to Yikes. win Super Bowl 58. Yikes. I mean, that that's a... Uh... And the Broncos are 18th and the Bills are 7th. That's how well the Bills are playing right now. And that's rough. That's that's changed. Uh, the, the, the AFC is much more compressed than the NFC. In the NFC, you've got four teams who have won 10 games and everyone else is 7-7 seven and seven or worse. In the AFC, as we mentioned, you have... 11 teams out of 16 that are 500 or better. And only two of those 11 are 7 and 7. Starting with Buffalo at 8 and 6, up to Houston at 8 and 6, Indy 8 and 6, Cincy 8 and 6, Cleveland 9 and 5, and then obviously you have the four division leaders all with winning records, although Jacksonville is sliding. Right. And Jacksonville is in danger in a three-way tie for first in the AFC South. They've got the tiebreakers but Jacksonville in danger of blowing the AFC South. Here are, here are the games to watch for. This week, of course, we mentioned Cleveland and Houston, Dallas and Miami. Those are the two most impactful ones that at least the game is somewhat expected to be in dispute. I don't think Buffalo is going to lose to the Chargers, for example. So I, I think you're no, talking about a close game. Not think so. Week 17 at this point, Miami again, as we pointed out with Baltimore. You're going to have to watch Miami the rest of the way. And then the other one to keep in mind is Cincinnati and Kansas City. Uh, you'd think that Kansas City at home would be able to hold a serve there, yeah, but that's one been. of the games you would have to be able to pay attention to. And then in that final week, you're talking about Houston again and Indy. That's a, an enormous game, especially if Jacksonville keeps sliding. Buffalo and Miami, and then Jacksonville again and Tennessee. So that the AFC South teams and the AFC South being so clumped really is a, a bit of a challenge for the Broncos. Now, they, obviously, you didn't play the Jaguars. You didn't have uh, it, it's the, Indy. You didn't you have didn't any on the schedule. You did but play. Jacksonville 6-5 and, and, and Indy 6-4 and four in a conference. But those are the are games that are really going to pay attention. To it. It's very easy to look at it, you know, if these things flip either way. You know, it's just hypothetically just throw a dart and say, the Broncos win out. Let's say Cleveland beats Houston. They've been at least winning, and Houston's not quite right, okay? So that would do the Broncos a bit of a favor anyway, uh, to a certain extent. Let's, well, the Broncos are in for Cleveland. Right. Houston. So let's They're say that works. Uh, and and let's say that uh, Miami, as the home team, beats Dallas, right? Uh, or would you, let, let's say if Dallas wins. Dallas is better Dallas for the Broncos. Wins. So that's yeah. better for the Broncos. That's so let's better. say that basically everything realistic happens for the Broncos that's better. You go into week 17, you put that in there. You'd have the Miami in uh, against Baltimore at home. No, Miami-Buffalo. Right. Uh, well, the weeks. Uh, oh, week seventeen. You're saying at, okay. at Baltimore. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the big ones, and so yeah. you know, I I suspect that's a game that Baltimore is likely to win at home. Yeah. So that would also be good 
for the Broncos if that pans out. And you assume that Cincinnati's going to be Cleveland. That brings you down to this week 18 that we talked about. And, and you can tell how many things we've navigated here, right? Now you run into the handful of games that really matter, Cincinnati and Cleveland. Yep. Now, were that the case, you'd actually want Cleveland to win because in our other scenario with Cincinnati losing, yep. the Broncos could pass them. So let's say Cleveland does that, just hypothetically. Brings us down to two games. You have Houston and Indy, and you have Buffalo at Miami. If you assume that the home teams win in both cases, Indianapolis and Miami, the Broncos are in as the seventh seed. If Houston beats Indy and Miami beats Buffalo, Denver is still in at the seventh seed. So the Miami-Buffalo game makes all the difference. But if Buffalo beats Miami in that last game, and everything we've talked about, uh, no matter what happens, trouble. the Broncos are out. That's trouble. I mean, this is what it takes. They need virtually everything to go their way. Yeah. And when it comes down to that last game, Miami versus Buffalo, they have to have the Dolphins I'm win to get a chance. I'm counting seven games in the last three weeks of the season, apart from the ones they play themselves, that are of tremendous importance to the Denver Broncos. And the right team, from the Broncos' point of view, has to pretty much go... Seven for seven. Yeah, the right team and pretty much has to win every time, and it's likely to be more like four and three. Three it's, and four. It's a very narrow path that they will have to walk for sure. And of course, Threading the Broncos the needle, and they have no, they have control, no control over it. Over it, no control. All. They have to win all three. So, what are they looking at? It is Tuesday. They have a monumental game coming up. Against the Patriots, we'll have our own Cody Rourke of Milo Sports join us to break it all down next.